Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello and welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 42. The meaning of life. Universe and everything. Well, we'll try and answer some of those questions. In fact, I think we answered <laughs> quite a few of those questions with our wonderful guest this week. The incredible Abir Mukherjee is our guest. Uh, Abir has been has written the Wyndham and Banerjee series, historical crime books, which have been enormously successful, not just commercially, but critically as well won numerous awards and is a brilliant guest i mean just the most entertaining hour i think we've spent a long time i think it was longer than that wasn't it because we actually had to renew the zoom meeting that we We did we did so um i you know i I hype all our interviews up but this is really special Uh, abby Mukherjee is our guest a little later in the program so introductions time the usual we are hobeck books my name is adrian hobart and my name is Rebecca Collins. Together, we run Hobbit Books, which is a UK independent publisher of the following genres. Crime. Thrillers. Mystery. Suspense. I was going for the quick and get it out quick. <laughs> yeah. Is that like giving birth or? Oh, it was for me, but yeah. that's another story. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome to the show. And uh, as usual, we are looking into the world of publishing from our perspective as small UK independent publishers with a roster of 17 authors and a whole load of submissions that we're working through at the moment. So uh, perhaps a few more to come. (laughs) Certainly a few more to come if we can uh, do the deals. But anyway, it uh, has been another uh, busy week. Actually, I spent some of it getting extremely wet in Wales. And I spent the rest here in Hobeck Towers. Yeah, I took my two boys, uh, Ben, 20, and James, 17, off to play golf. Uh, They managed to do some. I, I, for various reasons, only managed eight holes out of the three rounds we were expecting to play, partly because the course is closed on the Friday. Across, I mean, if you watched the British weather, it was appalling. We had to drive through floods. took us eight hours to get from North Wales uh, back here to Staffordshire. And um, that was uh, was epic in itself. Uh, I also fell over on the second day and twisted my knee uh, in the slimy conditions. Yeah, so I had this message. It just said, I have bad news. I've fallen over. And it said, they are sending a car to get me. And I yeah. thought, they? Are they, I don't know, the North Wales Hospital Service? No, or no it wasn't as dramatic as that. It was the, it was the golf pro. He came and rescued me uh, because I couldn't have walked back at that stage. Anyway, look, it's it's fine, but it was a bit alarming. You know, when you get to this age and you twist your knee, you think, oh, that's it. But I was covered in mud. I was absolutely, you know, caked in it. Anyway, the boys But it did your skin good, though. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that was a bit dramatic. Um, It didn't quite work out. And that's the second golf holiday we've had where we've had problems 
um, this year. So, And who thought golf was a nice, gentle sport? It certainly isn't. It really isn't. So I don't feel... I feel more relaxed now that I'm back here in Staffordshire and Hobart Town and getting on with work. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm very surprised you say that because I keep sort of throwing jobs at you, don't I? And then I? I grump away. But he anyway, does. I do, I do. Look, I've done the major job of the weekend, apart from recording this podcast, which was to complete my entry for our anthology the dark side of christmas it's it's it's, it's a strange thing because um we've we've had the deadline of uh, midnight 31st of october for a long time and i although you hadn't started it for a long time i knew you were going to do it i knew you'd pull through but mm. i thought i'm not going to remind you too many times but i knew you'd do it and you did so i'm yeah. very proud Thank you very much. Well, that's very sweet of you, even though you pushed back this morning and said it needed more what, jeopardy at the end. But what does a good editor do? I know, I know, I know, but I was just so desperate to get it done. I know you were, which that's how it read. <laughs> Desperation at the end. Yeah, it was. It was a sort of, yeah, and there's the end. Right. Anyway, it's been improved slightly. Uh, hopefully it'll be to your taste. Uh, it's part of an anthology. Many of our authors have taken part in it, which is uh, obviously the aim. And what we're doing is we're raising money for a charity based in Glasgow and Edinburgh who help homeless people, uh, both providing books and access to books, but also their opportunity to to, to help them write as well and tell their life stories and, and the stories they want to tell. So we're very happy to provide any profits that we make from this book to them. Uh, today, we had great news that Matt Brolly, former guest of the programme and uh, best-selling author, is going to do the foreword for us, which is wonderful. That's so thank lovely, you, Matt. Yeah. And um, we look forward to seeing that. Uh, and so this anthology will be out in the, at the beginning of December. Yeah, so 7th of December's publication date. Um, it'll go up for pre-order on uh, the 12th of November with any luck. That's the aim. Great. No, so that's something to look forward to. We'll, we'll obviously talk more about it as we get uh, closer to publication date and we uh, obviously love your support to to just buy the ebook uh or the print book even um are we doing print uh yes we are yes we are. yeah yeah okay <laughs> excuse him he's been away well, for a few days his head's a bit foggy <laughs> well it is a little bit foggy sometimes i can't remember what we've decided to do anyway look it's going to benefit a lot of people uh, for every copy sold so we'd be enormously grateful and i think the fact that both of us have written a story which it's a massive thing, I think, for us because we do suffer from imposter syndrome. We we are surrounded by these what we we regard as very good writers, our Hobeck team, and then there's our stories in amongst all that, and it, yeah. it can't um, help but think I'm not worthy. But... They're utter rubbish, aren't they? <laughs> let's let's look at the news then before we um, do ourselves any more disservice. Um, where do we want to start? Shall I start with a, a big industry? Go for it. Story, right? Well, uh, indie uh, publishers like ourselves are. Orenda Press. Mm. I don't know how long they've been around. Oh, quite, uh, well, not massive amounts of time, but they've had. A, they've been very successful. They were um, Crime Writers um, Association um, uh, Publisher of the Year a couple of years ago. So. Okay. Well, so they're they're well established. Yeah. Well, publisher and founder Karen Sullivan has suggested it's becoming almost impossible to publish in the current climate, and called for urgent industry wide conversation about this problem. She said there have been a major price rises over the five years for titles with the same print run, price point and finishes. The discount margin was also increased from around 45% when Sullivan first started a render in 2014 to now 55% to 65%. That, that is what you have to, as publishers, that's the margin you're giving to retailers mm. um, on the cover price, 65% of the cover price 
would go to the it retailer. It doesn't leave much, does it? Well, it doesn't leave anything, really, because production costs um, on print-on-demand, certainly we found... Oh, we wouldn't be able to do it. Well, though. we can't do it now. No, I mean, it, it, it's just become impossible. And so now we're taking... Um, we've moved most of our production to Clay's, who will do a cheaper print run, but a bigger one. So you still have to invest a lot of money to get, and, and you take the risk. Yeah, and there's also a longer lead time you have mm-hmm. to consider. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is what uh, Sullivan is saying, Karen Sullivan from Arenda. Uh, she's warned there could be stark consequences. The inevitable outcome of all this is going to be the loss of independent publishers. Oh, fingers crossed not. Yeah, I mean, that is quite stark. <laughs> and, with the, uh, and with the wonderful books that we offer, the riskier, bolder publishing, the variety of books available to readers and the wealth of culturally diverse original reads. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there are other things that are, are, are paying uh, their part here. Cost increases of 10 to 15% passed on by retailers and printers uh, basically take the margin out mm. for, for people like us. And... Uh, even on high print runs for our big sellers, we almost always lose money, particularly on our translated titles. And although our f- other formats go some way to mitigating that, they too come with their own expenses in terms of conversion, marketing, and indeed advertising. I mean, it's it's true, isn't it? I mean, she's basically saying that the digital publishing is paying for the print. So the print is vanity yeah. in that case. Yeah, and, look, and, you know, we may have to make a decision at some point to go digital only initially. And a lot of publishers, I've noticed this, will uh, publish in paperback six months after the ebooks, mm. And presumably that's only triggered when they've actually made the money back on it, the ebook sales. Yeah, it's almost like a proof of concept of yeah, that book. And absolutely. If, if they think it's going to be financially viable to do a paperback, then they will. And at the moment, we... we, we publish in paperback simultaneously um, yeah we do um and and there's going to be a, a point where we decide whether we just do print on demand through amazon um whether that's the way forward i suppose um i don't I, i'm look i'm just putting it out there that it's a know, risk it's all a risk at mm. the moment and there are a lot of people um you know for whom you know it's getting tough and i don't think we're any different to be perfectly honest. no we're not we're not immune to it at all no but we're new to it so it, yes. we, don't, we don't know what, what the margins were before because we've only... No, so we're new to it. And, and one of our aims is always to try and be that slightly more innovative than um, anyone else, if we can, as best we can, you know, so... Absolutely. Right, what have you got? Um, okay, so uh, every year, Waterstones pick a book of the year. And last year, it was um, Hamnet, Um so Hamnet, I don't know uh, if you... Is that Maggie O'Farrell? Maggie O'Farrell's book. So I, you bought it in paperback. I bought... I did, I didn't read it, <laughs> but I've got it in paperback. I yeah. bought the audio book and I listened to the audio in the car. I absolutely loved it as an audio book. I think it works really well as an audio book, but it's not an easy read or listen. Um, it's definitely literary fiction. She's well known for being in the literary fiction genre. But when this was awarded, Warsaw's Book of the Year last year, sales went up by 1,800%. And you did. You saw it everywhere. You saw it all on the tables everywhere. And it did very, very well. And it did get quite mixed reviews, actually. Some people absolutely loved it. Some people said they couldn't get on with it. It was too um, descriptive. Uh, too, there was Because it wasn't a plot as such. It's sort of based on um, the, the real story of Shakespeare and his family. But it's fiction, a fictionalised version of it. So um, I think, the, well, the point I'm trying to make is that winning 
the uh, accolade of Waterhouse Books of the Year is very good for sales. Uh, so this year's list, um, it it crosses all genres because uh, it's the the booksellers who nominate uh, who should go into the list. It's a short list of thirteen books. So from crime fiction, we have um, the Appeal by Janice Hallett, which I've read. You've loved, and so that isn't it. It it's got literary elements to it, but it's a very approachable, uh, easy read. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It's brilliant. Um, and then we've also got uh, Ishiguro's book Clara and the Sun which is sort of literary fiction I haven't read that but I've had my eye on it but then there's also things like um Malcolm Rutherford's You Are a Champion um you know Malcolm Malcolm, Malcolm Rutherford good old Malcolm you know that guy who kicks a ball around every now and then so yes yes under <laughs> a pseudonym Marcus Rashford oh yeah oh I didn't know he had a pseudonym and then there's non-fiction as well um Storyland by Amy Jeffs um any kids books uh, uh, well, I wait a minute. Charlotte Higgins' Greek Myths. Um, yeah, yeah. There probably is a kids' book. Um, Do you know how, how many? Yes, awards there is been... actually. Julia and the Shark. Yeah, but how many awards have gone to retellings of the Greek myths? I mean, it is a perennial, <laughs> isn't it? I know that our good friend Stephen Fry has done this a number of times. You know, he's written the book Troy as well, uh, which is his current book out there. Look, I'm not going to criticize Stephen because he's uh, given us a little. Boostet for the Genesis Inquiry. But, but the, it means a lot to us. It's the basis of most of the fiction. Yeah. Since uh, the... And look, I, I studied ancient history at university. And so, you know, I've gone into enormous depth with, with a lot of the great Greek texts, of course, Homer and stuff <laughs> like that. And uh, it is it is the a lot of those stories are just, you know, modern stories or retellings of the, those. And I have to say, we, you know, at this point, so your Christmas story is a retelling of. The Greek story, in a way. I saw it in your story. I'm not going to say what it is. Well, you did, yeah. And I went, oh, no. It I'm is. Not, it no, so is. No. No, it isn't. No. Yes, it is. It really isn't. Anyway, well, that wasn't my intention. No, I, I know. I, I, there was absolutely no effort on my part no, I know. to be um, clever. No, but the point I'm... Because <laughs> I can't be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I disagree with that. But the point I'm making is that these stories that originated from the Greek myths mm. have... T- lasted and are still being retold over and over again in different guises. I guess so, I guess so. Right, well, uh, the next story um, is one that's well, reasonably close to my heart. <laughs> I have appeared on this programme, let's put it this way, on a number of occasions. And here's a clue as to what I'm talking about. It's five o'clock. It's time for Sports Report. Yeah, that's the theme to Sports Report, which was uh, on the home service, I imagine. Uh, then on Radio 2, and then on Radio 5, and then 5 Live. And, of course, it is the Saturday music theme that uh, marks five o'clock on a Saturday, where you round up all the sports stories of the day. You know, mostly the football. And, indeed, in that context, I did... Uh, from uh, some years appear on Radio 5 as a football reporter. So, Apparently so. Right. Well, it's <laughs> it's celebrating its 75th anniversary very soon um, as the BBC celebrates, I think it's the 13th of October the, the, of next year is the 75th anniversary of Sports Report. And actually the BBC itself is 100 years old next year as well. Uh, and Pat Murphy, an old long-standing colleague of mine, uh, emphasis on old, um, he's probably been on the programme for nearly 50 years himself, 
uh, is writing, apparently, as Bloomsbury have scooped the definitive <laughs> book on BBC Sports Report. Now, when it was 50, BBC Books brought out one with um, uh, accounts from all the different people on the show's history, you know, talking about their recollections of doing it, including the mighty Des Lynham was uh, was included in that one, John Inverdale, uh, Ellie Old, Old Droid, lots of the sort of great legendary figures um, and, and um, you know, the names that you'd recognise from sports re- uh, reporting on the radio. Um, so he's writing now. Uh, this is uh, Pat Murphy, who still appears on the programme uh, regularly. Uh, he's retired, mostly, but still writes a lot of books and occasionally covers uh, Midlands football, particularly Aston Villa, which is his passion. Uh, and they bought the book, Bloomsbury, a uh, BBC Sports Report, a celebration of the world's longest running sports radio programme. And um, I used to have a rather uncomfortable relationship with it as a, ma- uh, as a manager at the BBC because I was running the World Service version. And we used to opt in for the commentary on a Saturday afternoon from Five Live. But that meant um, a lot of jiggery-pokery in terms of... Uh, getting uh, the pundits who were sitting at the matches to come on our thing. They often want to go and get their cup of tea and all this sort of thing. So there was a lot of um, political friction between us. But essentially, Sports World was the uh, the programme. They get two million for Sports Report, and we used to get about, what, 25 million listening worldwide. So, you know, you go figure. We should write a book about Sports World. We haven't done it yet. Who's we? Sorry, well, me. M- no, me. Oh. Me, 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 we. We, I, we, my old team. I could illustrate it. You could. You could. So there we go. That's uh, that's coming out next year. Pat Murphy's new book. About it is. I, I thought report. that would interest you. It did. Yeah. And the last story we have is a very frivolous story, but these things always attract my attention. The Duchess of York, also known as Fergie, is getting involved with Mills and Boone. Oh boy! She's going to select. I think it's it historic romance. Yes. One historic romance book a month to highlight as uh, her choice. Um, you uh, know. It's launching next week. Oh, Watch you next week. Yeah, on the 5th of November. She will with a, announce with a bang. Her, her pick each month in a video on her social channels. <laughs> oh, be still my beating heart as I hear this news. Oh, have you read the first book? I'm not sure it's called that, but, you know, that would be a good one, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, yeah, okay. Well, I just wonder how much impact that would have on buyer's choices. Not anymore, surely. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's 30 years since her heyday, really. Let's be honest. Well, I mean, you, I, I'd I mean, be... if Prince Andrew was choosing his books, now that <laughs> would be more interesting, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Yeah, because I think his prison reads <laughs> <laughs> if things go badly for him. Anyway, uh, yeah. So anyway, Mills and Boone, um, never knowingly, but, you know, they, they try anything. To I love, I love the, the sort of the Mills and Boone imprints. Now it is massive. Yeah, it is there, there yeah, are lots not... of sub imprints to Mills and Boone, yes, you know, there are, yeah. medical fiction, historic romance, I don't know, space romance, probably. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. But I, I love that how that has endured the test of time. We we still want to ha- go into that fantasy and of Rita, where love. I loved him. <laughs> yeah. Where people fall in love and happily ever after. I know, I know. And they have adapted and they, they've changed their formula and, and you know, expectations uh, to match what modern readers want and they've got a bit racier in places and yeah i mean you know there's a place for it absolutely and i'm not going to knock it and um you know would that we had something that sold so well as them so you know fingers crossed we'll come up with something maybe (laughs) maybe romance is the fifth genre that we should be we should be dipping our toes into if that's the right thing um yes 
Okay. Euphemism. On okay. that note. <laughs> on, on that note, we really need to get to the interview because it is um, one of the best we've conducted, in uh, my humble opinion. Uh, just to tell you that audio-wise, it's slightly different uh, because we weren't together. You were here in this booth. I was. I was in a, um, a very dark hotel room in North Wales, and Abir was very well lit in his basement in um, Was this one in like Guildford? Guildford, yeah. yeah. In Surrey. Anyway, the three of us got together earlier this week to discuss uh, his amazing career over the last five years since he committed to becoming an author. So here's Abir Mukherjee. We're joined by Abir Mukherjee, which is a huge honour for us. Uh, you described it in your email when, when I got in contact that it was an honour for you too. But trust me, I think Rebecca and I both feel this is a bigger honour our way. No, Absolutely. no, there's, there's, let's just say there's plenty of honour to go around, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's an extremely busy period for you because very soon your latest book will be out. The next of the Wyndham and Banerjee series, number five, is uh, is lined up and um, there's Good a lot of anticipation month. around it. That's right. Um, the 11th of November, it's coming out very soon. It's just, I always feel like I should do more preparation. And every every time a book comes out, I think, right, next time I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be organised. I'll have all, all of the events in place. I'll do all, I'll have all my marketing ready. And as usual, I've done nothing till the last minute. And now Isn't I'm that just of, life, though? Yeah. yeah. It's, it certainly is my life, you know. <laughs> everything is is replying to everything two days too late. With you know, every every email starts with an apology. I'm pretty sure the one I sent you started with an apology. Yeah, did. yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but look, we do the same, so you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, do you still get the butterflies? You know, five books in. Yeah, uh, in terms of the launch, or in terms of yeah, the writing? in terms of the launch and the reception that you you're going to get. Oh, absolutely, because... uh, absolutely. Um, I don't think I'm. I don't think you ever get used to that, and I don't think you should ever get used to it because, um, as you know, I mean, each book is is like your baby. You're putting your your life and your your heart and your soul into it, um, and you want people to like it. I think the day you become blasé about it, um you're losing something you're losing something in your writing and you're losing something in yourself um and i don't think you're doing your readers any favors either um so yeah no i'm i'm you know as as worried about it as as anybody you know the morning that the book comes out i'll be sitting on the toilet with my phone out looking at reviews don't you worry yeah, yeah. Uh, at 6.30 in the morning, I'll be, I'll be online, don't worry. <laughs> How we picture that? <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably too much information, wasn't it? But, you know, honesty, honesty is important, so there you are. Yeah, well, I, I think people don't, I mean, we talk about the warts and all of publishing, but I don't think people appreciate just how much work is done on the toilet uh, <laughs> in the publishing game. <laughs> I, I do a lot of tweeting on the toilet. Yeah. Um, you know, it's multitasking. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, let's um, let's go back. We'll, we'll talk about the the book um, the, shortly, but let's go back to to the origin story because I, I love. I mean, it's true of a lot of people um, coming into publishing and writing is that you know it comes late later in life than perhaps they would want, and uh, and I think that's you know I think uh, you first were published what late thirties. Um, no, later than that, actually. Um, I was, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you the story. I, I was 39, hurtling towards 40. I was three months away from 40. And I'd spent the previous 20 years of my life 
as an accountant. Um, and I really sort of asked myself the question, you know, is there more to life than accountancy? Uh, which is a difficult question to answer. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'd always wanted to write, but I'd never had the courage. I'd never had, I never thought I could do it. I, you know, I, could, I never thought, I would read wonderful work and I would think I could never do something like this. Um, and I think a lot of people have that, you know, this 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 sort of imposter syndrome. And so, you know, I'd, I'd made a couple of attempts. I'd started stuff a couple of times. I'd written, you know, 5,000 words of something or, or, you know, a chapter or two of something. Um, but then I would always either get scared. I'd read it and realize, oh, this is rubbish. Or just life would get in the way, you know, um, mm-hmm. as you know, with kids and family and job, um, it's hard. It's often hard to find the time to write, especially when you don't have that sort of self-belief. Mm. Um, but for me, I think the turning point was, as I say, when this, this midlife crisis at the age of 39 and three quarters, <laughs> um, my wife said I couldn't get a motorbike and, and writing crime fiction seemed like <laughs> the only, the safer alternative. <laughs> um, so I had this idea. I, I wanted to, to look at this period in sort of British and Indian history because my, my parents came from India. Um, you know, I'm steeped in that culture. And but growing up, we never learned about you know British colonial history. We didn't get taught about yeah. you know what that period was like. And so you know, I would I grew up in this this environment where we sort of looked at our history through rose tinted specs. And then I would come home and I would get a completely different interpretation from my father or my mother. Um, and so from this very early age, you know, I, I had this feeling, I think many people do when you grow up between two different cultures, you have this realization that not everything you're told is necessarily gospel truth. And so I'd always wanted to, to explore this period. Um, but I'm too lazy to write a history book. <laughs> I just don't have the patience. Um, so, you know, if, if, if I can't, if, I, if something's not clear to me, I'll make it up rather than research it. So, um, you know, it, it and I grew up, you know, reading Tartan Noir and other types of crime fiction. I read a lot as a kid, but crime was the crime fiction was what I came back to. It was the thing I loved the most. So when it came to sort of my turn to try writing, um, crime fiction seemed like the natural choice. And so I wrote like 10,000 words of this idea that I had this British detective going to India after the First World War. He's a sort of damaged veteran of the war and he ends up in Calcutta because oh. it's slightly preferable reading those 10,000 words and I got scared again um, and I put them in a drawer and then I got very lucky I saw a competition in the Telegraph advertised by Harvel Secker which is uh, part of Random House um, looking for new crime writers and all they wanted was the first 5,000 words of a novel um, and I've already told you that I'm lazy um, and I'd done that work. So I thought, well, you know, let me just tidy it up and send it away. And, and that's what I did. And I didn't think much about it. I, I was hoping to get some feedback because I had never, I'd never sort of submitted anything. I'd never gone on any three or four months. And then out of the blue, I was at work one day and I got an email from the editor or the person who ran the competition, a woman called Alison Hennessy, saying, congratulations, out of 500-odd entries, uh, you've won, and we're going to publish your book. Um, <laughs> I, I reacted the way anybody from Glasgow does when you're faced with good news. I started swearing my head off. 
my colleagues thought I was having a heart attack. Um, but that was that was the beginning of it. That was the the beginning of the journey, and that sort of ten thousand words became my first novel, The Rising Man. Um, yeah, and that was the beginning of Sam and Surrendering Up. Absolutely, and I, I I've just jumped in on a Rising Man. Um, yeah. You know, both reading it and using the, listening to the audio book. I think it's brilliant. I but I know that you have said in the past that you can't read it now because you've advanced as an <laughs> author and you can see where it could have been improved in the first place. Absolutely. I think you're being kind. I, I find it very difficult to read that novel. I, I cringe. I can't read that one. I cannot, I can, I have trouble with the second one as well. Um, just because I look at it now and you can see, I mean, I think, I think a lot of authors feel this way. I know, um, I've read Ian Rankin say that if you could go back, you would rewrite Knots and Crosses. Um, I know Joseph Knox, who wrote The Smiling Man and Sirens and books like that, he's he's actually gone back and rewritten his first <laughs> book, which is, you know what, he's much more efficient, much more organised and much more talented than I am. <laughs> the idea of going back and fixing my book would take too long. Um, yeah, it's true. I, I, can't, I, I find it very difficult to read that first book, especially the first half of it. Um, it was very much the beginning of a journey, and it's a journey I'm still on. I think I think there will come a point where, well, I would hope there will come a point where, you know, if I, I read this new book, I won't be able to read it. If I read it in 10 years' time, I'll still um. cringe because I hope <laughs> that I'll have learned more. Um, but, yeah, each, each book is different. I feel I'm learning with each book, but um. I'm still so, so close to the bottom of the mountain that, you know, I'm not going to run out of cringe anytime soon. Wow. So maybe when you get to your 100th book. <laughs> oh, well, that would be nice. But as, for the first. Well, as, as I've said before, you know, I'm from Glasgow. My life expectancy is limited. I was just watching a Kevin Bishop. Um, uh, sorry, is it Kevin Bishop? Yeah. Anyway, uh, sketch about how uh, it's impossible to get a 70th birthday card in parts of Glasgow. <laughs> without ordering it a week ahead <laughs> but um yeah i'm heading that way myself I heard that. that is that is really good <laughs> I like that. Uh, but, it's also I mean, a that... damning indictment of my culture and society but never mind <laughs> no indeed well i mean i i i think what what struck me about that you know a rising man is the the question of writing from a certain perspective. So you, you got your first person uh, narrative in the, in the form of, of, you know, Wyndham's point of view. So uh, a middle-class guy who ends up in the Met um, because his education's cut short, the family runs out of money. So his public school education in a somewhere, um, is it Devon he was, he was educated in? I can't remember now. Oh, Somewhere you're asking yeah. questions on a book I can't read anymore. <laughs> no, well, there you are. You've read it for a long time. Mind. You can't remember. But the, <laughs> that was a tough one. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, the point I'm trying to make is that there's an awful... <laughs> I mean, since you wrote that book, and in the last 18 months, <laughs> there's a furious debate about who is entitled to write from what yeah. perspective. Yeah. So um, I know that in this next book, you know, you've you've uh, given Surrender Not uh, his first person narrative to some extent as well so that's a big departure for, for the series Absolutely. um but you've, you've you felt uncomfortable writing him uh in, in previously Let, let's 
let's unpack that. Let, let's start with the, de- the general issue of who can mm. write what and appropriation. Um, I'm firmly of the view that as, as writers, we should be able to write anything and from any perspective we want, as long as we do it from a position of knowledge and we do it from a position of care. Um, it, it shouldn't be tokenism. You know, I've, I've read books where characters have, you know, are given, you know, described as a Hindu, but given Muslim names and are given a Sikh yes. turban. And yeah. that, that, that's tokenism, right? So that doesn't work It's just lack of research, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. If it's you research something and you do it sensitively and you do it from a position of, you know, uh, of, of care um, and respect, then there's, I, I think you should be able to tackle any subject from any point of view. Now, that might be naive of me, but it is something that I feel, and it's not something that, has been you know questioned or nothing nothing that that belief has not been questioned or challenged yet in a way that I'm willing to accept I'm wrong mm-hmm. uh, now I could be wrong and maybe somebody will come along and explain to me why I'm wrong but as of yet you know I have not come to I've not seen an argument that says you shouldn't be able to write from certain points of view or certain you know whatever it is if you're not from those backgrounds as long as you do it well and you do it respectfully mm-hmm. position of knowledge in terms of Sam and uh, Surrender, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is something I was actually thinking about today because the series, as you said, Adrian, is now called The Wind Series. Um, of Surendranath, who's you know known as Surendranath because the British can't pronounce names longer than one syllable. Um, you know, maybe it's as he grew as a character that the titles of you know the series changed. Um, but to answer your question, why why was it? Why did I? Why as the son of Indian immigrants did I feel more comfortable writing from a white Englishman's perspective? than from an, let's call him an Indian Indian's perspective, as opposed to a British Indian or a Scottish Indian. Yeah. Um, and I think, that, I think that goes to one, firstly, it goes back to my lack of confidence when I started. I didn't think I could write authentically from the point of view of an Indian Indian in the 1920s. And despite knowing that particular language, Surendranath is Bengali. He comes from the same social strata as my family does. He grows up in the same city that my father and mother grew up in that I know quite well. Um, He would have had overlap of his life with my father's own. He would have been, you know, if he'd been alive, you know, my father would have been a kid, but Surendranath would have been around in the city in the same streets at the same time. And yet I didn't feel, having been born and raised here, I didn't feel comfortable or confident enough in my own abilities to write authentically from his perspective. Um, so four or five books in, I think a number of things have happened. I think I've got a, and, and that's a shame because he and Sam came to me together within you know seconds from the point of view of only Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think over time, several things have happened. Suren has grown older. Um, you know, when when we first meet him, he's very much the subaltern. He's the the wide eyed young kid who's amazed to be working with this you know ex Scotland Yard legend. 
And then five weeks later, he realised he's, work, he's working with, you know, an ex-opium addict. <laughs> he often, you know, needs Surin to tell him which direction to, you know, face. Um, so there's that. There's also the fact that the relationship between the British and the Indians in that period is changing dramatically. That's the period when Gandhi starts his first non-violent all of society is written an empire are changing um, and suddenly he's finding himself he is finding himself in the books he's actually found his voice faster than I expected I thought this change would take a bit longer um, but in book four he's the one that says to Sam you never even try and pronounce my name correctly um, and which which Sam finally does try, you know, and and it just seemed like book five, it was the right time to introduce Surin's voice to have half of the book narrated by him. Um, you know, if I if if I set out, you know, I always said I'd set out to show people that there were two sides to a story or a different side to the history that we're taught. If I if I truly believe that, I should show you two different points of view rather than narrating it from just Sam's mm-hmm. point of view so I hope that's what it is I hope it's it's something that's occurred naturally uh, and it surprised me that it's occurred by book five I expected it to take longer um, part of it is Surin's fault I think he's done it quicker I mean and, and the other part is going back to what we were talking about a wee bit earlier about pushing yourself with each book um, you know in book four was the first time, book three, I think, was the first book I was relatively happy with, uh, Smoke and Ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, I set out to write a thriller, and I felt I achieved that um, to, to a greater degree than I've achieved, you know, uh, what I've, my objectives were with each book. Now, book four is a much, was, a, was a much more challenging book. I, I set it over two li- uh, timelines, and I made it allegorical. Um, so I had great ideas for what I wanted that book to be. I think it's a better book than Smoke and Ashes, but I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. I didn't achieve as much as what I wanted to achieve with that book. Um, similarly, this book, this is the first time I'm writing from more than one point of view. And I've never done that before. So, again, it's it's a challenge in a different way. Um, and, again, um, I think it's Ruth Ware said to me, you know, when you come up with an idea, it's a, it's a cathedral in your head and it's a shed when you write it on the page. Uh, and I think I think you, my job or our job as writers is to turn that shed into a greenhouse if we can. Um, so, so somewhere between two. Yes, and, and I think that's, that's what I'm going for, greenhouse. <laughs> um, so let's see. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and what you just said, I mean, about Suren has dictated that he's ready for this transition. Um yeah, he told me, me that, I, you know, like, it, it, you, 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 like so many authors, let the characters speak to you, and they, yeah. they tell you where <laughs> things are going. So you're, also, you're just a cipher, really. It's their absolutely. story. Absolutely. <laughs> to be, to be fair, this, the series started as therapy, and it really is still therapy for me. Um, I don't know what that says. I'm, I'm <laughs> Scottish after all. I'm not paying real money for, you know, real therapy. Okay. <laughs> 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 So this was my therapy, but now, you know, even the therapists, Sam and Surin, are now getting in on the act, so I'm not quite sure what's going on. But yeah, I think an awful lot of authors are like that. You know, we, we the characters, the and I think you want the characters to take on a life of their own. Um, yeah. It's real that way. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, all the best 
books that we you know come across our manuscript pile and indeed you know we publish uh, mm-hmm. I think I think I, I, I like that because well uh, you know I'm, look, I'm a nascent writer myself and I've kind of got down this wormhole of being a publisher instead um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> my fault is, we've, we've all got to have hobbies you know you're a writer <laughs> who does, has a sideline in publishing yeah that seems to dominate because, my life because of <laughs> love isn't it it's because of Rebecca right it's because of love that's why yeah. you're in this that, that is true that is true yeah, yeah. yeah I mean Hobeck is built on on the love yeah I mean exactly that and actually really? you know funny enough I did pay for therapy uh a few years ago when <laughs> I was, when, not Scottish not, not for very long um you know I, I'm sure I have Celtic roots there somewhere, but um yeah and my my psychotherapist said to me oh just look there's two things you need to do give up the job you hate um leave the woman you can't live with uh and you're in love with someone else so go and live with her and then do something together. So this is what we've done. And, you know, you he was are. right. He was absolutely right. And he's paid two... There's a two book days. in there. There's a book in that in <laughs> itself. Yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, no, I think it's it's wonderful to know that that someone, you know, with your presence in the market, if, if you like, if that's the right phrase, an established figure yeah. in the British and Scottish crime scene, um, that you're still writing you know an exploratory writer in the sense you you're trying to challenge yourself in different ways absolutely i mean i i still i'm right at the beginning you know this may be book five but you know as it's been six years that's all it's been Mm -hmm. um i I did my day job for 20 years and i was still no good at it so i'm not gonna six you know so I think there's an awful long way to go and 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 the one thing that keeps me going is that I am a slow learner uh, so it'll take time well well it's good to to you You making me feel better it's it's important it's important you know this is the thing we we often and I'm, I'm guilty of this you know I put writers on a pedestal my whole life I remember and I still do you know whenever I see um, Denise Miner, I get goosebumps because she's such a phenomenal writer um, <laughs> I embarrass her now by telling her this and I, I say it everywhere when she gets really embarrassed but she is just such a, a fantastic writer and, and we do that but at the same time I think at least with crime fiction most people have their feet on the ground we're you know we're mm. all I'm sitting here talking to you from my basement right because my kids <laughs> are going wild upstairs that's not you know it's, it's, it's not very rock and roll is it it's not rock and roll at all is it it's like I'm gonna have to you know bathe them and get them to bed after this that's but that's what life should be about isn't it you know mm-hmm. this is what you know so much of life and so much of our joy comes from our kids and our family and um, and Adrian, just to pick up on your point, yeah, I gave up a job that I, I, I wouldn't say I hated it. Um, I, I, what I loved about my job was the people, but I did not. I was not the right person for that job. Yeah, um, mm. and I did it for twenty years. And and what it felt like doing, you know, starting to write was, um, it felt like swimming against the tide for twenty years, and then suddenly turning around and going with the tide it suddenly felt much more natural. It felt, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had a morning when, since I've started writing. And, and you know, luckily, uh, over five years, I've become a full-time writer. I've transitioned. Um, <laughs> got to be careful. Uh, you know, I've become a full-time writer. But there's not been a day in that time that I've woken up and I've thought, I don't want to do this. Whereas <laughs> there's been so many days when I'd woken up in my old job thinking, 
I don't want to do this. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I think some, we're, we're cut out for certain things and we're not cut out for certain things. Um, but we can do them all, you know. If if you know if a gun's held to our head, or we need to feed our families or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and and it may take time. You know, it took me twenty years to find uh, find out or to get lucky. Let's call it that. Let's mm-hmm. call it what it was. I got lucky after twenty years. But if I can get lucky, anyone can get lucky. Yeah, That's I guess it's, it's it, it's a question. It's a reward of the to some extent of the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> having the guts really to to do something different but at the same time I mean I had no choice really when it boiled down yeah. to it I couldn't carry on what I was doing and the way I was doing it. it it you know it what we do now is as you say you're swimming in the right direction mm. absolutely I mean in your case it was guts in mine I wouldn't say it was guts it was the it, as I say it was the lazy option I'd done the work um I, the people I admire the people who write full novels send them in get rejections, try again and again and again. Um, I'll have to be honest with you. If, if I hadn't won that competition, I don't know if I would have written, I would have finished the first book or whether those 10,000 words would still be sitting in the drawer. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's why my admiration goes out to those people who do it again and again and again without the safety net. You know, I wrote my first novel with a safety net, knowing that it would get published or at least they would give me some excuse why it wasn't good enough to be published. But I had that. I didn't have the the process of having to find an agent and find a publisher and to do all that and having written 100,000 words. Mm, you know, I, yeah, that, that, that takes guts. What I did was just luck. Um, but as I say, if I can get lucky, this is the way to, to short circuit it. To, to your listeners out there, I would say, enter competitions i know Mm. at least four or five writers that have got their starts after winning competitions no i agree it's definitely worth it absolutely absolutely and as adrian (laughs) says do it for love yes (laughs) (laughs) now you'll forgive me as i as i'm I'm doing this because i i am battling to keep the zoom going and they're trying to get me to subscribe to a bigger package. That's all right. I'll tell you what we'll do. If we run out of time, we'll just we'll just stop and we'll repeat the last sentence and we'll start again. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, you're a pro. <laughs> yes. I'm cheap. I know how to get around to it. <laughs> uh, Abby, you've become a bit of a fixture on the on the old circuit, if I, if I might say, because um, you know those festivals that are not unique to the UK crime scene, but they are very very special because they're also different from each other in their Absolutely. philosophy and approach um what was it like when you first got those invitations you know presumably uh, you know when the rising man became such a, a a big success and you know your career was launched in the way it was um did you uh, did you take it to, like a duck to water or was it was it tougher um i'll i'll be honest with you it was it was such an honor um, and it was it was crazy. It was crazy. Suddenly you're you're sort of talking to or, or people at like Ian Rankin and Val McDermott are talking to you. And it was the fir- that first year was just mental. It just felt it, it just felt like a dream. And I think in, in certain respects, um, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. I didn't I, you know, I didn't get the chance to just stop and say, wow. I mean, there were occasions, obviously, in those first few months when when things were happening and it was just like every day was something amazing. Um, and it was great. Um, did, was it, was it difficult? I'll be honest with you. It wasn't, as I say, it, it didn't feel difficult. It felt natural to me. Um, 
but that's basically because I talk without engaging my brain. So, <laughs> you know, it, you know, if I'd thought more about it and I'd spent more time thinking about it, maybe I would have got scared. But it, it felt natural to me. It felt wonderful. As, as I say, I started this off as therapy. And then, you know, the next stage from, you know, the, the, the one-to-one therapy with the keyboard was the therapy with a room full of people. Um, <laughs> so so it, it's actually worked out really well. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, what I struck me because Harrogate was my first, our first um, festival oh, yeah. this this year. Right, okay. Yeah, you know, the return. And um, uh, there's two things I noticed. First of all, yeah, you authors really get on with each other fantastically well as a as a group. It's, it's didn't we come up with a collective noun for crime authors? I can't remember what it was though. Oh yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, <laughs> procrastination. Well, yeah, that could be it. A hangover um, of crime writers. Yeah, a hangover. A, a hangover. Yes, I think it was a hangover actually. Yeah. Yeah, that would work. A hangover of crime writers. Yeah, definitely. A Billingham of crime writers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's getting a lot of love today. Um, but but the other thing is that struck me was the extreme warmth those audiences bring. Um, yeah. You know, whether it's the marquee or it's in the you know assembly rooms or whatever it might be, they are exceptionally. Um, generous in spirit um and actually a little bit awestruck as well when they're they're in your uh, your ambit well i mean let, let's let's break that down to be honest with you um harrogate was my first festival um five years ago now yeah um it's been a really short period of time and i was actually thinking about that when i was at harrogate this year um but you're right it's very warm it's very inclusive it is and I, I don't know if this is true or whether people just say it, but people say that, you know, the crime fiction community is more welcoming than, say, certain other categories of fiction. Um, I can only tell you that the support you get as a writer from established authors like Val McDermott and Anne Cleves is amazing. It, it, you know, they, they don't need to give people at me the time of day, but they go out of their way to help. Um, and I think that ethos that it's pervasive, you know, because they have helped others, you have to pay it back. You feel like paying it back. Mm. And it is it is a community um, and it's really warm. And, and that's the same with the readers, I think, because crime writers are crime readers. I think that mentality, mm. that sharing mentality, that caring mentality, that warmth spreads throughout the entire group. Because um, we're all the same. We all love the genre. Whether you're a writer or a reader of crime fiction, you love the genre. The genre. And somebody once said to me that, you know, crime writers um, are different from thriller writers in terms of their outlook and, and maybe their politics as well. Mm. Um, and maybe there's there's a bit of truth there in terms of readership as well. Um, mm. I think crime writers often are writing from a position of trying to challenge the status quo, of pointing out the faults in our society, whereas thriller writers are often, um, let's say, lauding the abilities of our society, be it our you know, secret services yes. or whatever. It's about defending what's already there, whereas crime writing is about punching up and questioning what's already there. And I think that mindset is very different. It's, I think that's an inclusive mindset. Uh, and that goes, that applies to the reader's, and the writers. Yes, I think that sounded quite coherent, didn't it? No, that was really good. I was saying about talking and then the brain catching up. That was that's how it works. It's pretty well, cool. Uh, 
Well, that has that is a brilliant definition. I think you're absolutely right because you know, yeah, I like that. Are from and now, now I come to think about it, yeah, that's not so bad. Yeah, yeah no, that, 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 you're right. I mean, it is about you know the 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 powers that be, the you know the um, what's the word I'm looking for, the establishment in this country, or indeed you know the uh, the Washington Beltway kind of thing, enforcing their will and you know suppressing whoever's threatening it. Um, yeah. I mean, not, not to say that I don't enjoy a good thriller. I, I mean, there's oh, some phenomenal but in terms of the general principle, I think I think there is something there. But it's, it's more escapism as well, isn't it? A thriller. Yeah. You're sort of living this this life that's not quite reality, whereas crime is the nitty gritty. Oh, this is what the real yeah. world is like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to another. Thrillers are drinking their posh whiskey and lots of lovely ladies following them. And yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to do some research into a posh whiskey lady chasing thriller. That was <laughs> lady following for yeah or being followed by that. Yes. What I was going to say is that, you know, that nitty gritty includes, I think, I think what one of your greatest strengths, if I might say, is your ability being too kind. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, you know, <laughs> I'm looking forward to buying a drink next time we're at a festival again. But um, <laughs> oh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty rare. Believe me. Um, the, one of the things that I have uh, a problem with is when authors over describe characters. Oh, yeah. And scenes, you know, the settings. Um, and I think that one of your gifts is that you can convey uh, all manner of, uh, you know, you can take your reader to the streets of Calcutta, whichever district it might be, or whichever room it might be, or whatever situation, extremely quickly and succinctly. Um, but that's not a gift that other people, you know, perhaps uh, submitting to us uh, display. So what's, what's your secret? Well, first thing to say, it's not a gift, it's advice. It's advice that was given to me by my first editor, which is to say less with more. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, because what matters is making something memorable. Um, and I, I think Stephen King wrote this in his book on writing. Yeah. Um, and it appealed to me, again, because I'm lazy, it's to make the, the reader do the work. So if I tell you, unless something is, is relevant, there's no point in me describing it. I'd rather the reader um, fill in the blanks. Do, let, let's take a step back. What's what's the author's job when the author is writing a book like this? It's to create a bubble of unreality in which your reader can spend, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it is when they're reading this book. Anything that strengthens that bubble of unreality is the author's friend. Anything that, that punctures that bubble is the author's enemy. So anything that takes the reader out of that bubble is a bad thing. And anything that strengthens the bubble is a good thing. So you should co-opt the reader's imagination to strengthen your bubble. If, I, if I'm telling you about a character, um, it's better. So, for example, today I couldn't tell you what Sam Wyndham looks like. Or I, I, I can tell you what I think Sam Wyndham looks like. But my wife's version of Sam or uh, view of Sam Wyndham uh, is very different to that. My old art teacher drew me a portrait of how he imagined Sam Wyndham. And he was very different to the Sam I had in my head. Um, that's not to say he was a bad art teacher. He's a brilliant art teacher, you know. Um, but that's that's the beauty of, of writing. His version of Sam is as valid, if not more valid, than mine, because it's real to him. Um, yeah. So as a writer, if I give you a detail which doesn't chime with what you've already got in your head, 
that takes you out of the bubble or that weakens the bubble that we're creating. The more I tell you about a person or a room, the more chance I have of taking you out of that bubble or of saying something that doesn't chime with what with the image that you've got in your head. So if you know if I was describing a room, especially if a room doesn't matter, if it's a room that we're going to see once uh, or maybe twice, like a hotel room or whatever, um, there's no point in telling you that there's a single bed, a wardrobe, a desk, a view <laughs> out across, unless it's relevant. What's better is to give you one line that's memorable. So when I first started out, I would have said, you know, the room was small, maybe given you its dimensions, said what was in it. Um, but then on the second draft of that first novel, that room just became, you know, the room was like a monk's cell, but without the proximity to God. And that was it. I mean, yeah. that vision is enough yeah, you get an image, idea. But also that, that kicker at the end without the proximity of, to God gives you a wee bit of humour, which mm. again helps. So you can say more with less, you, you know, give, give the pertinent facts, but if you can dress it up in a way which is um, memorable and often funny, yeah, mm. um, not everything is, is funny, but if you can come up with something which is a one-liner um, and you can get it into your descriptions, that'll put an image in your reader's head. And sure. unless there's something special about the room, um, you know, there's something you need to have in there, like there's French doors that he needs to get out of and jump down, whatever it is. You know, there's no point in, in describing that because it, it's extraneous. It's better that your reader builds that image. Um, and that's what I try and do. You, you'll find that 90% of what you think I'm doing, Adrian, in, in describing Calcutta is actually what you're doing describing Calcutta. True. Mm. As long as I give you that 10%, that 10% that gives you the framework, that gives you a bit of colour, you're filling in the rest. And that's like why... joining people... the dots, basically. Yeah. 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 As, long as, you, as long as it feels authentic to you, mm. that's fine. Um, because that's that's what you're aiming for. And if I can give you that 10%, which gives you the framework, which gives you the pertinent details, a wee bit of colour, a funny line, you're doing the rest. The reader is doing the rest. And that's what you want as a writer. And that's what you want as a reader. You're more invested in it when I'm giving you one line that you remember than you are if I give you a forgettable paragraph with mm. dimensions and furniture. Um, <laughs> you know, so... So Plus, the book is going to be four times as long. <laughs> exactly, and and the thing is, it's not a gift, Adrian. It's 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 advice. Yeah. It's advice that was given to me, and advice that I would give to to your listeners and to anybody who's writing. Um, mm. There's there's nothing clever here. It's just about thinking slightly different. Um, and and that's that's what it is. You know, people, as you say, people say the, the descriptions are so vivid. How do you do it? And I'm like, I'm not doing it. It's you. That's doing it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like being an artist, isn't it? So you're sort of slightly abstract. You're not completely abstract, but you're not, uh, you know, representative representation, or you're Absolutely. a slightly abstract artist. Uh, that's very kind. A lot of people have called me very abstract. <laughs> I don't think it was meant as a compliment, but but I'll, I'll take it in this case. <laughs> It's, it's interesting, we were debating this last week or a couple of weeks ago, what Sebastian Fuchs said at um, Cheltenham at the uh, Literary Festival there, where he said he no longer feels comfortable given the situation. I mean, we're going back to the, some of the issues about representation, but he won't write a description of his female characters because of the, the culture that's pervading at the moment. I mean, uh, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? 
yeah, yes and no. I mean, again, it goes back to what we were talking about is if you do something well and you do it respectfully and you do it in a way that doesn't concentrate on breasts, which so many men, male writers tend to. And and this is the thing I read. I read some of my favourite authors. I'm not going to name any names, but, um, you know, one of my favourite authors who's passed away, I'm, I'm still a huge fan of his work. And then I was on a panel at Harrogate discussing him and, and several of the, the other writers on the panel hadn't read him before and had read him for the panel. And, yeah. and they were women and they were commenting on, you know, there's so much misogyny in, in some of these books. And again, you know, I'd, I'd read them 20 years ago or whatever. And, and again, they were written by an older generation. And it was written, again, it's historical fiction, so there's an element of, you know, what's right for the period. But they were absolutely right. I wouldn't write my books the way that that author had written them 20 years ago. Um, But that, again, he was of a different generation. So I can can understand... Look, it's it's a minefield. It's the same issue with when you're writing different cultures. It's, It's something that's not your lived experience. I think the issue that a lot of male authors have and I'm going to say white male authors here um no, <laughs> no and I'm gonna, I'll tell you why I'll say it because there is a difference there's a difference in how you perceive the world um and it's not just authors you know I, I'll go to lunch with my mate Paddy who lives down the road from me and, you know he's a white Englishman though he claims to be Welsh or Irish but he's English right <laughs> and he can take so much more or he takes so much more for granted than I do. So he, you know, if he wants to go and get another napkin from underneath the, the the server's counter in a restaurant, he'll just get up and do it. Whereas I wouldn't think to get up out of my seat and go over to where they kept the cash and pull up pull open a drawer, because my first reaction is people are going to look at me. Yeah. Okay. But he takes it for granted that he can do things because he's 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 and you can call it entitlement, but that's the way the world was always set up white men at least in this country had a leeway that the rest of us didn't and it wasn't their fault it's just the way it was that's the way that the system works and that's the mentality they had now that's being challenged for the first time i think uh or at least it feels like the first time maybe it's, it happens every generation maybe things change little by little but it mm. feels like we're going through this water watershed where where that entitlement that ability to just unquestionably unquestioningly do things is being challenged it's being challenged by women it's being challenged by minorities um and and so i think this is part of it i think there are things that maybe a white male author would write that i wouldn't have felt I had the license to write ever. Um, And I think that's changing. I think the license of what we write is changing and the entitlement to write whatever we like without thinking through the consequences is changing. And that affects certain groups more than others. And not because it's any sort of vendetta, but simply because some, some groups were able to take things for granted, which other groups of society could never do. Yeah, and that's all that's happening now. It's it's not a persecution. It's a hang on. You know what? You you, you used to be able to do that. You can't do it. Um, and there were, but there were things. You know, there are things that I have privilege. You know, I come from a very middle class background. I had better life opportunities than white working class kids from Govan five miles down the road. I've had Absolutely. my share of privilege, and I'm a man, 
Right. So, you know, I'm not I'm not giving you the you know gospel on this. I'm not preaching from the top of the mountain. I'm just telling you, I think this is what I've learned. And it could be right. It could be wrong. But this is what I feel is happening. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think in many ways, you know, my story of the last few years is an example of of finding, uh, you know, being in that situation. You know, uh, I'm white middle class, went to university, grew up in Cambridge. Um, surrounded by academics. Oh, everything's your fault, Adrian. The whole yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but you know, and ladies working... and gentlemen, we have found him. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And, and and I worked for the BBC for twenty five years. <laughs> you know, it gets worse. And I was in middle management. Oh, you couldn't. Get, we're going to you get anyone less diverse. Sorry, sorry, Adrian. I cut you off. Carry on. Well, I'm, I'm a ginger, so that 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 puts me, you know, in a in a minority. You are but, in a minority, you know, then. It, it's interesting, you know. What I'm writing at the moment, uh, well, not writing. I, I've it's been shelled for a few months, but well, no, I'm write writing, it, write it. Don't 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 caveat it. Write it. You are writing. No, you're right. It. You're right. So what I was writing was um, a it was comic in many ways. Rebecca will say, um, but it was going back to the 1940s with a character who was exactly those things: the archetype of privilege, Cambridge educated. From, uh, from money, uh, fathers and admiral, all that sort of stuff. Um, and a terrible, terrible, cheeky misogynist of the, of the old school sort of, I say, she's a, you know, sort of Terry Thomas kind of, <laughs> of approach. And I can't help but feeling now that as I listen to this and we discuss this, and I, I reflect on the last few months of my career at the BBC, I'm basically pining for a time when you could get away with it. And <laughs> you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with pining for that. You know, it's, you know, that's, I can understand that. I can understand the certainties that there were then. Yeah. Um, this, but again, the, the the flip side of that is the the level of inequality that there was in society then. Um, if you weren't rich and of that class and a man. Yeah. yeah? So if you weren't, if you didn't take all of those boxes, your life was pretty shit. You know? yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, I, I could, I could <laughs> understand it um yeah and we're all guilty of it we're all guilty of looking back at you know some halcyon period where a certain sector of society that maybe we fitted into was you know you get it's like my wife's from south africa and you, you meet sort of white south africans who say the country's going i mean you meet indian south africans yeah, who yeah, say yeah. That the country's going to the dogs and you think yeah but it's still better for 90 percent of the population than it was <laughs> true, true, true. Um, no, so, it's interesting. I mean, there, there's, there's, there is depth there, but I mean, the, you know, but he goes on that, you know, the awful journey word, you know, uh, yeah. to some degree of enlightenment by the end of it. But uh, that's where he starts from. Yeah, well, I want to read it. I want, I want this book to be finished. OK, well, Me too. Yeah. well there you are. <laughs> You're outvoted, Adrian. You've got to keep going now. Well, look, if you if you've got a cover line on it for me, then. Uh, we'll absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> We, uh, before we get to Rebecca's Thanks random to, question, base this character on me. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we we ought to say a, a big thank you to you, actually, Abby, because you know one of our most well, our most successful book to date um, has a cover line with you on it, which is uh, Mark Whiteman's "Waking the Tiger," set in Singapore, oh, wonderful. which was nominated for the McIlvanny and for the debut prize at Bloody Scotland. It's a great book. It's it a is a great, book. yeah, it is a great book. And, and you know, I can see parallels, you know, between Mark's style and your own, uh, you know, but, um, you know, that sort of support that you were talking about that you get in the crime community, it means a great deal because I think that gave him a great deal of confidence, but it 
didn't have to give us a lot of confidence putting something like that on a front cover. Well, you're, you're doing you're doing a great job, and it was a great book. And and I go back to what I say: we're all in this together. Um, we're we're all, and I I believe this: we're all on this journey, right? We're just at different stops along the way. Um, <laughs> And that's all it is. You know, some of us might be, you know, four stops down the line. Some of us are at the first stop. Some of us are still at Waterloo waiting to board. But it's about <laughs> getting on that train and it's about starting that journey. I can't tell you where it ends because uh, uh-huh. this is British Rail. Nobody has a clue. Well, the trains go all over the place, don't they? You can end up anywhere. <laughs> no idea what is going on. But but we are. We're on this journey and we're just at different stops. Um, it's it's up to those that are have gone a few stops up ahead to you know point the way to say look well this has worked but that was a dead end uh but this way is going pretty well uh, yeah, don't change trains there stay on this train exactly. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny you say that about no one knows where it ends but i have done that thing and i, I don't know if you've done this where you've had a few drinks you get on that train and i used to live in brighton and oh, i ended up in a depot uh oh, man, in a completely I've... cold and shut up train <laughs> my, my train i'm in guildford my train ends up in portsmouth hub harbour yes of course it does oh, that's, that's a nice place to go though well not in the middle of the night when you're drunk it's no. Not. <laughs> no trust me it really <laughs> Asian staggers off the train at portsmouth harbour yeah that's gonna end well rebecca yeah definitely <laughs> yeah no <laughs> well you could just end up on the central line going round and round and round i've done that too yeah <laughs> ah there's a, that's your trivia question which underground line is not a, a line and it's the circle line. Yeah. yeah. Because it doesn't have any of its own track. It uses everybody else's track. That's, That's right. true. It does, doesn't it? Which yes. Right. It's yeah. like, 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 like a 50 pence piece. Yeah. So it's just why you will end up. That's why there's always more delays on the circle line than any other line. Because the people that make the decisions are people that work for the other lines. But and if so, you're drunk on it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. You don't care. <laughs> if you're drunk, stay on the circle line. I, I, I might just lob in the uh, the Adrian random question. Have you ever done the circle line pub crawl? Do you know what? I haven't done the circle line pub crawl. I have done the Glasgow underground pub crawl. Oh, the, well, clockwork, the, the, the clockwork orange. Yeah, I have done that, um, which is actually quite dangerous because there are some stops with really, really steep staircases. Um, you're trying to get, seriously, that somebody needs to ban that because it can be quite. <laughs> what about the boozers? Also, I mean, you go in the wrong boozer in, in certain parts of Glasgow. Well, I was about to say, so, so I was actually because I, I had quite a mixed bunch of friends in Scotland because, um, you know, accountancy knows no creeds or colours. Um, <laughs> but we were on this pub crawl and we were in Ibrox. Uh, and we, we wandered into this pub <laughs> with a mural of the UVF on one more yes. queen on another. And we'd had a bit to drink by this point. And two of my friends, my Catholic friends, decided they needed to go to mass, at which point I shouted out, being a Brahmin, I'm a priest, I can take the bloody mass um, <laughs> in this hardline Protestant pub in Ibrox. We left very quickly after that. And <laughs> oh, uh, my word. Yeah, I love Glasgow. <laughs> no, but it's like that, train out of, that scene out of train spotting too when they go into uh, a Protestant um, uh, yeah, mm. community hall or whatever and they're <laughs> forced to sing a song on the spot. It's, I think it's, funny. <laughs> it's the funniest scene. Uh, Glasgow, Glasgow is actually a wee bit like that. Glasgow yeah. is. Uh, I mean, it's 
it's I mean it's now getting to the stage. You still got the hardline bigotry, but a lot of it is now just pantomime, or at least in parts yeah. is pantomime. Yeah. So you can get away with that. Sort well, of I, I, I witnessed a few years ago when I was in Glasgow watching a, an orange march going past the Barras, and it was just like, <laughs> what am I doing here? This is, you know. <laughs> I dodged Belfast for years because of, yeah. this is ridiculous. You know, I was shocked when I was in. I saw an orange, an orange march in London. Yeah, and that, that oh, was a wee bit, okay. It's still people in sort of Rangers tops, but yeah. it's still a wee bit odd. Um, yeah, I never expected to see it in London. <laughs> Listen, we, we've taken quite enough of your time, I think, but yeah. let's get to the the real nub of every interview, which is. <laughs> I'm going to give it the big. Oh, we just, I thought we just. Did, I've got two random questions. That's not. Fair. Yeah, he cheated. Well, he added his own. You're such a superb guest. <laughs> I thought I thought the way pretty well. You tell me, there's another one, right? Yeah, this yeah. one. This one. I don't know what it is. This uh, I never one. Always as shocked as the guest. Okay, Rebecca's random question. Right. So, are you aware of Squid Game? I feel this bit in the show deserves its own theme music. No, we'll, we'll get. We'll get. We'll get to yeah. it. So the question starts, are you aware of Squid Game? I am aware of it. I have not watched it. No, it's about the same as me then. So the basic premise is um, they take a load of people off the streets and they say, um, join this game. And if you win, you'll win loads of money. And they don't tell them what happens if they lose. But the truth is, if they lose, they get killed. If that was offered to you and yeah. you got a choice of what sport you could partake in, yeah. what would you choose? It's <laughs> actually a really good question for me because I'm like the worst sportsman. And I have like, I should point out the point of the, the part of India that my parents are from is Bengal. And Bengalis are not really known for their sporting prowess. Uh, in fact, the genes that we have, we've harnessed to the greatest, we, we've honed the short-sightedness gene, the pot <laughs> belly. Oh, you the glasses, yeah. Yeah, I've needed them since I was 10. Uh, my boy's needed them since he was five. Um, <laughs> and the pot belly gene and the baldness gene, those are the three that we've really concentrated on. We've got them down really well. So we're not the most athletic. Um, <laughs> this is a really good question. I'm going to die at pretty much any sport. What have I played that was any good at? I thought I was good at badminton when I was at school, but then... When my, my first kid was coming along, um, I decided to get into shape. So I started playing badminton again, and I survived 10 minutes before I tore my Achilles. Um, <laughs> I used to snowboard till I sort of tripped on a tree and and, bro- and dislocated my shoulder. This is a really good question. Which sport would I survive? Well, it doesn't sound like there's any. <laughs> I'm, this is it. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm really struggling to think. Is there what? It would have to be something that lasts the longest amount of time. Like a test match, just so I could get those extra cricket, yeah. days to get my affairs in order. Yeah, we'll go for we'll go for a test match cricket. Um, well, yeah, um, I'm just, with you there. <laughs> just let me, you know, contact my lawyers and you know get the, the crematorium informed. Yeah, yeah. Let's go after with my golf performance today, I think I think test match cricket is probably a better. Well, my eleven year old did choose golf, and I asked him. I put uh, the question to him, and he said, "Well, obviously, golf." Well, there you so, go. Yours golf, is golf is a good one, but I don't have the patience for golf. <laughs> no, you know, I'd end up like Happy Gilmore, just like <laughs> getting really angry, having a heart attack probably on the course, and that would deal with it. <laughs> yeah, it, oh, it, yeah, so the outcome is 
Yeah, I usually get riled up. You know, any opportunity to get riled up, I'll do it. Well, I think we're, we're drawing to a close. So that was Rebecca's random question. Abby, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, Just remind us when um, The Shadows of Men is out. Uh, it's out on the 11th of November, so not long to go now. And it's currently the Sunday Times Book of the Month. So uh, please do, if you get a chance to read it, please do. And thank you so much, Rebecca and Adrian, for having me on. It's an absolute Oh, you're privilege. very welcome. It's been oh, our, our pleasure and, uh, and our privilege too. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I've been told, haven't I? I've got to write a book now. Yes. And and somebody of, of the calibre of Abir, I think, I think you, I don't know why you're here. Why are you here? Why aren't you at the desk tapping away? <laughs> well, I should be. I should be. But Actually, the... you did write your Christmas story after that interview. No, so... that's true. That's true. You know, and it got me flowing again. So that's that's a good feeling. Um, but yeah, what a wonderful interview. Uh, so much depth there and so many interesting perspectives. But I love he's so just self-deprecating. But, you know, he's incredibly impressive. When you see him live, you know, he is as he was in that, you know, just so fluent and, and intelligent. And, uh, you know, I'm blowing smoke up. Uh, and ashes up um, <laughs> as a little pun for but you. He's another hopeful story, isn't he? He was an accountant, and and now, and he he did keep saying, "I got lucky, I got lucky." But you know, yeah, it, he, it can happen. It can happen, and the the luck shows no sign of running out because he's working all the time to improve. So, um, you know, he he deserves all the success he's, he's had. And the, I started reading the first of those books, one he won't read now because he, he's embarrassed by I know, by it. that's it's fascinating, wasn't it? superb. <laughs> it's one of those things that makes you weep. This is your first novel and it was so out of the box. And, of course, it was edited, uh, highly polished and all that sort of thing. And he's learned a lot from the, the editing process, but it was just great. Uh, a Rising Man was the first. And, uh, of course, the fifth book in that series coming out, as he said, on November the 12th, I believe. So uh, exciting times. But, yeah, it was great to speak to him. Uh, and we're grateful for his time. Now, we're we're still working on our guest for next week. But we have an idea, which is one of the most heartwarming stories I've seen in publishing in some time, if, if we can pull this off. Yeah, I, I, I've got high hopes for this because I think it'll be interesting. A different, a bit of a departure for us, but... Absolutely. So we'll leave it there in terms of uh, what we're going to say about next week. <laughs> in terms of our week to come, now that we're back, we've got the kids back to school. Yeah, which is a relief uh, to some extent. Well, it's, it's been it's uh, it's been slightly stressful for me because my oldest has been going through um, university application, and up until the middle of the week, he was looking to do a maths degree, and from the middle of the week onwards, he's looking to do a geography degree. So yeah. Although he feels a sense of relief that he's now sort of realised what he really wants to do and been able to express it to everybody, he's he's quite nervous because he's got to rewrite his personal statement, he's got to tell the school, he's got to sort of start looking at universities all over again. But it's the right decision for him. But I would say that's added a sort of level of tension to the week. Um, yeah, it's been it's been difficult, and I, I you know one of the problems that uh, he's facing is the fact that he's not been able to take an A-level in geography because it was oversubscribed at his school. He did geology instead, which actually, you know, obviously is very closely related, but it's not geography. So the assumption was that because he'd not done A-level geography, he couldn't take it at undergraduate level. Um, well, I contacted a friend of mine who is a professor of geography, just so I happen to have the professor of geography <laughs> uh, as a friend um, in Manchester, and he said that confirmed that that's not a problem. His university and many of the others don't require it because what they'll do in the first year is lay the foundations 
that everyone needs to proceed to a higher level in years two and three. So if uh, you know Luke gets the scores that he, on the doors that he needs, it shouldn't be a problem. Mm. So he's feeling much happier, much more content. So actually, the sort of general atmosphere in the house is much better than it was. Um, work-wise, it's been a case of juggling to some degree. Oh, big time. Um, you, you've been working so hard. I mean, look, I, I, on holiday, I was chipping away with a few things. Yeah, you did. Um, but, you know, you've been, well, you, 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 I think people ought to be aware, if they're not already, that you juggle two careers. We run Hobeck, but also you have a freelance career on top of that, and that's been extremely busy recently. Yes, um, and so today we are hoping to sign off uh, silenced by Jenny Ensor, get the files to the printer first thing in the morning, um, or at least by sort of early afternoon. Um, so uh, I'm sort of expecting that this afternoon. So you know, we do work at weekends as well. Oh, we don't, yeah, it never stops. Uh, even even when we're on holiday, uh, it never stops. It's Halloween today, and because it's Halloween, and I always do this, I don't know why, but I always um, do something to mark the occasion. So I am wearing something that signifies that it's Halloween. Yeah. Um, <laughs> before your mind boggles too much, you are wearing some rather gaudy tights. They're stripey, pink and black stripes, and I'm wearing all black. I do have a witch's hat. I'm not wearing it as we record because it would interfere with the headphones. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I'm a, I'm, I'm a Halloween refuse, Nick. You are. You are a bit of a... I'm a bit of a grump, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, really? you are when it comes to things like this. And... I am, yeah, and Bonfire Night. Oh, oh I don't like Bonfire Night no, for obvious reasons. You, you but... can't stand the bags, but... <laughs> no, no, it's... it's um, yeah, I'm a grump. I'm getting old. I'm getting grumpy. But, um, no, this week it's going to be... Well, it's going to be another busy week. I've got a lot of audio work to do. That, you know, that, To be honest, uh, I haven't... I'm just getting my voice fully back, but what I've not got this is the stamina to do long sessions yet. And that is problematic because, you know, ultimately you can only edit what you've recorded. And so even after this little session, we've been on uh, recording now for about 25 minutes. I'm feeling a bit rough. So mm. I have invested. <laughs> you, you went, what have you been brought on Amazon? And I went, <laughs> and it, what it turned out was some vocal zone throat, throat pastels and some, um, some throat tea. That well, uh, it's supposed to keep my voice going. It's funny you say that, but I need to delete from our basket a T-shirt that tells somebody how many days they've been born if they're 12 years old, plus a mug that says I'm an adult now, because I accidentally added to our basket birthday presents for my ah. two, <laughs> two of the boys. So, Yeah. Well, look, I mean, for the for the authors listening, um, whose audio projects I've been working on, be assured I am doing my very best to get them done. Uh, and we have others which uh, are almost signed off and ready to go. So, um, you know, it's a busy thing, but it's such a slow process. Um, and, uh, you know, it sounds like excuses, but it isn't. It is always I can vouch for that. It really is. It's, it is. He comes out of the booth normally and he's absolutely exhausted. And Yeah. I mean, I put every ounce of energy into the performance and, um, you know, the mental concentration alone in, in reading out loud. Look, if, if you don't believe me, try reading out loud solidly for half an hour. Feel how tired you are. But it's actually, talking of that, though, it's good practice for authors to do that. Some Absolutely. Of our, some of our authors do do that yeah. with their stories and their uh, books. Well, we saw Lynn LaVersh last week and she does that. Um, her second pass in through her manuscripts is, is read out loud. And it, it, Sue Shepard yeah. as well. Sue Shepard uh, posted on Facebook she was going to spend the whole day reading uh, the second book in her series. So good, good Lord. I hope that went well. <laughs> oh, you'll be ragged after that. Right. Well, 
it's um, so that's uh, part of it. We've still got the submissions to finish. We're nearly there. Yeah. In terms of deciding who we'd like to look at for We're the manuscripts start, of. Start proofreading the anthology as well this week. We've got that. We've got other books uh, for early in 2022, which need proofreading and um, and, and, and checking over. So uh, lots and lots of things have arrived on our desk, uh, which is great. And we are working again with Matt Holmes on our publicity and our mark, well, our marketing side of things. And uh, so we need to catch up with him and and, and um, appraise how things have gone so far. So lots and lots for us to consider. But that's the nature of running Hobet Books. And uh, that's what this podcast is all about. And so uh, I think we'll, we'll draw to a close at this point. So our mystery guest, hopefully next week, will be no mystery <laughs> at that point. But uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, what we do, uh, perhaps you'd like to go visit our website, www.hobeck.net. And uh, so much content there and uh, depth as to what we get up to. We'll write a blog sometime this week, maybe as well. We haven't done one for a bit. No, we haven't, so we should do. We should do. Put it on the to-do list. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> think of something. Um, but um, it remains for me to say, from Adrian Hobart. And Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hopcast Book Show. Join us again next week. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from it all helps and the more subscribers we get the more influence we can have as well Uh, but we hope you enjoyed this week and it remains for me and Rebecca to offer you well our good wishes and hope you have a wonderful happy and of course creative week you've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins you can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit